Welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Healthcare Du Jour is brought to you by Carium, the telehealth platform enabling healthcare's digital transformation, helping you care for people within the fabric of their daily lives. Now, here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Dr. Scott Cullen, EVP of Strategic Innovation and Chief Clinical Officer at Avia. Dr. Cullen, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my conversation is give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So Dr. Cullen, the floor is yours. All right. Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, So... I uh, originally trained as a primary care physician and practiced in the Mass General System here for about 10 years before I went into the professional services space. And and that began largely with a a history of of, um, me working in technology projects such as computerized physician order entry, EMR implementations and optimization, that sort of thing. As my career advanced, I, I focused more and more on management and strategy uh, and have spent a good deal of my time in areas around uh, physician network development, but also in guiding health systems through the transition to becoming uh, more patient-centered uh, and more value-based. And so I would say that, in essence, that's really where I've been focused. Now, uh, I am currently leading our health system facing services for Avia Health Innovation. And Avia Health is all about digital transformation. From our perspective, the future of healthcare is going to require extensive transformation when we look at the the impending tsunami of demand combined with where we are right now in technology capabilities uh, and in the need for bending the cost curve. So as those three forces come together, uh, a 50% plus increase in demand over the next 10 years, um, combined with a sicker population and a decrease in the available workforce, not just within healthcare, but in general, the cohort behind that that cohort of 60 to 90-year-olds that's going to grow by 50% is a cohort that's going to shrink by 30. So even if you left out the fact that we're losing clinical resources um, on a daily basis, even if we could recoup on that loss, we're still going to be behind the curveball uh, in terms of uh, having just enough bodies to fill the seats necessary to take care of of you and I and the rest of us 10 years from now. And that may not seem very immediate, but but that's a that's a linear curve. So in other words, we're not just we're not at the at the beginning of some sort of exponential curve. We are a third of the way up a very linear curve that means that every year there are going to be, you know, uh, close to 100,000 more uh, high utilizing more senior people in the population. Yeah, no, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think before we start doing that, the other kind of background question I always like to ask is, um, what first made you want to get into healthcare? No, that's a great question. Well, before, uh, before I went to medical school, I was a paramedic for a number of years, you know, through my college days and, and uh, through some of my post-college other careers. I had been in engineering. I had been in architecture. I had been in teaching. 
Uh, but the but the consistent thread through all of that was a strong interest in uh, sort of clinical care. And so eventually I did, I didn't start med school until I was 28, but uh, I did eventually uh, follow through on that particular career choice. Yeah. And then kind of, as you talked about, you know, you move from clinical practice into more management and technology focus. So kind of given that your breadth of experience, how would you describe maybe the typical physician's viewpoint of technology? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, to the degree that I can reflect the typical physician, uh, what I would say is that physicians are not Luddites. Um, we are big technology adopters when the value proposition for that technology is really clear. So, for example, when it comes to pagers or cell phones, you know, physicians were among the earliest adopters of those things. However, when it comes to EMRs, <laughs> that can be a very different story. Uh, you know, EMRs are still not well designed from the end user perspective. And uh, so the challenge for physicians has been that as we've implemented more and more EMR technology, we've actually lost productivity overall as an industry sector, where every other healthcare, you know, uh, excuse me, where every other industry, uh, excluding healthcare, has actually added productivity by leveraging technology. And and part of the reason for that is that in all of those other sectors, they also transformed the business model in order to exploit the benefits of that technology. Uh, so if you think about financial services, right, when you went to a bank, it used to be there were tellers behind a window and they'd be giving you the money and you'd be in, engaging in a transaction with them. Uh, and that, you know, um, that was a process that didn't always uh, work to your benefit from a customer-centric nature, uh, but it worked fine for the banks. Now, as banks and financial institutions became more customer-centric and implemented digital and other technologies, they could reduce workforce needs uh, and they could increase productivity massively. I mean, how many of us ever go to a bank physically in person now, right? Um, so by the same token in healthcare, where there's been clear benefit to technology implementation, for example, in um, radiology, right? So 15, 20, 10 years ago, maybe even as, as late as 10 years ago, um, it took six FTEs to produce a plain film chest X-ray, right? Uh, you know, somebody would uh, take the patient into the uh, radiology suite. Uh, they would shoot the film. Uh, there would be somebody who then have to develop the film and a place where there was machinery for drying it out and managing that. There would have to be a, somebody managing the file room, right, for um, for chest x-rays. You know, I mean, nowadays we laugh at the idea of a file room, right, because these things don't exist anymore. Um, but back in the day, it took a lot more for you to get a chest x-ray, get it interpreted, and make a clinical decision about a patient. Since that time, with the implementation of digital uh, solutions around that, we've been able to uh, reduce the FTE cost on that, while at the same time massively improving the speed to getting an answer to the person who ordered that chest film. It, so kind of what you were just describing raises a couple of uh, parallel questions. So I'll go with what's at least sticking in my mind first, which is, you know, as you said, physicians are willing to adopt technology when they can see the value prop. Mm -hmm. So for some of the newer technologies, 
you know, what components of the value prop are missing or in, is that missing because physicians aren't getting enough input into maybe how that that design is or how that technology is being designed from a functionality perspective? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, I, I think that to a large degree, uh, you're correct about the engagement of uh, end users in the design of these things. Um, and also heretofore, before generative artificial intelligence sort of arrived on the retail scene recently with ChatGPT, um, most of these processes and technologies simply transferred uh, a process that was manual to a process that was digital. You know, leaving aside the efficiencies that were gained in radiology, for the most part, in other areas of healthcare, you're simply taking a note that you used to scribble on a page and um, you're putting using a keyboard to enter it into a, a digital platform, right? So, and, and, and you know, there are a number of systems, I don't wanna name names in terms of brands of EMR or other user tools, but a lot of these tools were designed from the back end forwards. And, and that design mentality basically says, um, here's the data that we need. Here's how we want to organize all the data. Here's how, how we want to be able to pull that data out. And then the whole process of using uh, the data entry element of that solution as a workflow tool was very much a second, <laughs> secondary component, right? Um, you know, you know, EMRs and, and RevCycle basically uh, are driven by getting to the right code so that you can build for the encounter. They're not driven for what's the lowest impact on the physician end user and how do we improve their productivity? Clearly, I mean, manifestly that's the case because predictably that's exactly what's happened. So because we didn't design it from the front end backwards, um, we get a whole lot of dysfunction when it comes to the process of using the technology. Yeah, and I, I suspect a lot of people would wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. And you know, thinking about how the design could be improved, you know, was part of the hindrance as those tools, you know, with the focus maybe on an EMR when they were coming out, was it that there were did the necessary tools not exist yet that could allow for a transformational implementation as opposed to, as you said, just translating the manual to the electronic? To some degree, yes, but we also have to consider that for every workflow in a particular environment, right, there are subtleties and differences to optimize that workflow. And uh, the, the cost of creating and implementing a technology is substantial. Uh, and the cost of then customizing that technology to the degree necessary to optimize a workflow in a particular environment would also be substantial. And so for the most part, institutions that purchased EMR solutions were trying to find the lowest common denominator in design that would meet the greatest need um, at some sort of level of pain for the end user. And by that, I mean that uh, you know, you, it, it wasn't possible at that time necessarily to design a, an optimized user interface for every end user. Um, but, uh, you know, the middle ground was not always an overall productivity improve, improvement for, the, for the, all the different workflows in an organization. 
So what we ended up with was very much, you know, putting the burden for the data entry and the workflow on the end user uh, so that we could most cost effectively collect a certain level of minimum information that we needed. Now, I think that the future can be very different and AI is one of the reasons for that. So one of, one of the things that I think about uh, in answering that need is that we should have adaptive user interfaces driven by the ability for those solutions to learn the use pattern of each individual end user, right? And optimize to that, to that end user's uh, workflow. There's really no reason why we, we can't do that if we design the tools in the right way. And that's just not something that would have been possible before sort of more broad, broad adoption of AI. So generative AI can support that, but so will predictive models around AI, and so will more flexible, um, you know, use of a, a user interface at the front end. Yeah, no, and I think that offers kind of a very optimistic view for the future, because as you said, it's, you know, taking what has been used and implemented and hopefully iterating on top of it. And for those of you just joining, I'm talking with Dr. Scott Cullen from Avium. We've been talking a lot about kind of the view of technology and um, you know, some of the positives and drawbacks that have come along with it. And Dr. Cullen, kind of the other piece that you had mentioned a few minutes ago that I wanted to touch on beyond kind of what is the value prop of the technology, it's you were talking about how other industries have adapted and changed how they operate in response to the possibilities brought by technology. So what are maybe some of the low-hanging fruit areas in healthcare where that could start? And then how does that keep growing to reflect you know, real system-wide evolution that mm -hmm. takes advantage of technology more wholesomely? Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, and, and frankly, one of the one of the inhibitors to innovation at scale in healthcare has long been the operating model components of scaling a pilot, for, for instance, right? Um, and by that, I mean that when you look at, take a, you know, we're doing work with several organizations right now around defining how they're going to pull different technologies, virtual technologies, <coughs> excuse me. My COVID test was negative, so. Um, these institutions are uh, beginning to look at how would they more effectively aggregate their virtual capabilities? Uh, virtual nursing, virtual sitting, uh, e-consults, uh, virtual visits with physicians uh, in a more comprehensive business model that can effectively scale those in an organization. So at this highest level, what you need to figure out is how do you build this virtual medical center, right? Pulling these virtual capabilities together in a coherent way to not only deliver a certain experience, but also do it in a coherent business model that's profitable and well integrated with the physical environment, right? Because increasingly we're going to have, you know, as we as we do even in the banking industry, I'll go back to banking as one example, right? What we really have is um, 
you know, a hybrid model of largely virtual, but sometimes you have to go there in person, right? Healthcare is probably going to have to move in that direction, particularly when you think about the capacity constraints and the demand curve that I was talking about before. We're going to need to be in a position where we can be virtual first or, you know, virtual when it's feasible and physical when it's needed. And um, that is going to be a big change to the business model for healthcare, not least of which because of the reimbursement model, but also because we're organized in health systems to treat these things very differently, to treat the virtual side of the experience differently than we treat the physical side of the experience. Well, it's, to some degree, that's a product of operating models that have not been transformed around the experience of the patient or around the experience of the provider either. Uh, we have to start looking at that patient-provider dyad as, as both of those people being our customers as a health system and figuring out how do we optimize the experience for both of them. Because when you think about the workforce challenges, right, if we're not starting to pay attention to the experience of our clinical workforce, we're not gonna have it for much longer. So, um, it's a critical imperative right now. And, and so going back to what I was talking about with the inhibitor, inhibitor, going back to what I was talking about just now around how innovation can be inhibited as you move out of your incubation environments into your operating environments. Operating model in that business issue that I was just talking about uh, is probably the biggest. Now, there are others as well, right? There are culture and there's training uh, and there's identity, uh, which is a biggie as well. And I can touch on identity at some point. But, um, but, but the number one factor is often the operating model. To get to a place where you have an integrated experience, you're going to have to move some people's cheese. And when you do that, there's going to be resistance and there's going to be the need for substantial change management and reorganization of that operating model. So kind of given that last point where, as you said, you're def, you know, you're going to have to shift things around and, you know, probably means taking from some and giving to others. Do you have a sense that a meaningful or meaningful movement will occur on that through self-initiative, or do you think it's going to take an outside force, say like Medicare, just imposing a new schema on healthcare that's going to end up moving the ball the most? I think it's going to be multifactorial. Uh, so first of all, we've been saying for a number of years, why can't healthcare be more like Amazon? Well, <laughs> look where we are now, right? Amazon's in healthcare. That competitive pressure and that transformed business model that they want to bring to that competition is is going to elicit a response, or at least it had better elicit a response. Uh, to some degree, I think that there is a, a, a level of push from CMMI and CMS and other uh, regulatory and payment bodies to say, the emphasis of measurement for you needs to become more and more about the experience and less and less about your internal navel gazing around um, what it costs or what you believe the measures of quality are. So I, I would say that there is a weak but persistent force from on high 
that is turning our attention to the patient experience at least. And then finally, there's kind of the internal pressures around cost and workforce uh, that are and, and the opportunity now driven by new technologies that should also provide some impetus to have us uh, look differently at the business model and find new ways to transform around that as well. So kind of thinking about that workforce issue, because it's something you were mentioning earlier as well, you know, from your perspective, what are some of the specific examples where technology is going to provide a game-changing opportunity on the workforce constraints and uh, pressures that are you know already rampant across healthcare and seem to, as you said, yeah. only be getting worse? Well, one of the one of the issues, of course, is top of license practice. Um, and and, and we, the reality is, we've actually seen this for a while. Uh, if you look at you know, um, interactions between primary care and specialty care, if you look at interactions between different levels of nursing uh, within an acute care institution, in many, many of these cases, the work that could be done by less licensed or unlicensed people is still being done by licensed people due to a lack of that transformation coming into the picture. So, you know, to give a one example, uh, if you look at the, the nurse's task profile, right? If you were to take, break down what a nurse's day looks like and everything in that task profile, it's been estimated that something like 30 to 40% of those tasks could either be outsourced or automated. Now there's some degree of activation cost to that. There's some degree of change management cost to doing that. Um, and there's also an identity barrier to doing that. Uh, the first two elements are really a matter of um, defining the, the return on investment necessary to engage in those activities. And the reality is that until the last couple of years and this attr massive attrition that we've had, right, the value proposition relative to the cost may not have been there. But that's that's switching now, right? So it's clear that we can either spend a ton more on agency and continue to do so going forward, or we can start thinking about remodeling our care teams. Uh, so, so that's to be a little bit specific. I'm pausing because I lost the thread of your question a little bit, so I'm going to go back to it. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think that's definitely getting, you know, starting to answer the question. I think it sounds like, you know, you see other opportunities beyond just the top of license where the technology can help bolster, um, you know, shortages within the workforce. So it's yeah. you know, kind of beyond the top of license. What in addition or what other additional areas have you identified? Okay. More broadly, when you think about the capacity challenge, if, if what we're hypothesizing is that um, we're going to need 50% more capacity, right, and we're losing capacity, uh, then we have to look to efficiency optimizations as well, if they can meet the need substantially. So if you could shift 30% of those nursing tasks or if you could reduce the time spent in the lowest value tasks. So let's take, for example, physician documentation, right? Now this is happening already to some degree as uh, you know, DACs 
is uh, marrying up with Epic and they're beginning to define ambient listening capabilities uh, so that instead of spending 30 to 40% of your time in the chart documenting care, that that documentation is occurring as you're having the conversation with a patient, right? That's a humongous potential productivity opportunity. But um, there's a biphasic curve to these transformations. And what I mean by that is that there is um, task, if you shift or replace tasks from an individual, and, and you you let's say you take 30% of the tasks off their plate, you've now got a 70% resource. So in order to turn that 70% resource back into a 100% resource with higher level tasks in their job, right, you have to effectively remodel the task profile across either a broader team or distribute some of that to um, uh, efficiencies of automation uh, or outsourcing so that you then are either increasing nursing ratios, for example, or you're allowing a physician to see more patients. Um, you know, so it, it requires, it, it's not just that initial efficacy benefit. If you take 30% of the nurses tasked away, for example, right, in the acute setting, then um, you may get some initial efficacy benefit without the remodeling. So they're going to spend more time with patients, which means there may be a decrease in readmissions. There's higher patient satisfaction scores. There's probably going to be higher nursing satisfaction scores as well, right? But you're not going to get scalable economic benefit that way because you haven't increased capacity. You've only reduced some of the pain. So you have to find a way to remodel the job so that you're actually increasing capacity by having that nurse maybe focusing on true nursing tasks and doing less documentation and doing less uh, scut work on the floors and maybe doing less work that a nurse's aide could be doing or somebody else could be doing a task that's not even licensed at all. I uh, think about post-discharge phone calls, for example, right? A lot of, in some institutions now, nurses are making phone calls to patients after they've left and it's an, it's an attempt to reduce readmissions and it's an attempt to improve, you know, stickiness and continuity of experience. But does it really need to be a nurse who's making those phone calls 100% of the time? Probably not. So we need to be looking at these job profiles and we need to be thinking about how do we leverage our new opportunities for efficiency with technology? Yeah, I think a lot to be optimistic there and a lot or thereabout and also a lot to keep an eye on. But, you know, as I said, believe it or not, we are already out of time. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Scott Cohen, for a great conversation today. Thank you, Matt. It's been and thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag HCDEJURE. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>